I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. It's out! The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga is now available everywhere books are sold. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive practice to yoga. It's available on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to a very, very special episode of the Beyond Trauma podcast. Um, This came together in one of those truly organic and somewhat magical ways. When I was doing one of my book parties for the launch of my book, I was very lucky and blessed to have Linda Sparrow there. Some of you might recognize that name. She's an author and a mentor and a writing teacher and a yoga teacher, and she's behind many of the yoga books out there. And her child is a grown child that actually did the photography for my book. And anyway, Linda and Simon were there to support, and we started talking about post-traumatic growth. Now, this is a topic that I have been very interested in and trying to find the right person to get on the podcast to talk to you all about, and it's a delicate topic. So... We never want to say, oh, it's great. You had this trauma. Now you, now you can grow. I mean, it's an important topic and there's some research behind it, but we want to have the right voice sharing that. And of course, Linda knew just who that was. She worked on uh, this very special book with Dr. Edith Shiro, uh, The Unexpected Gift of Trauma, The Path to Post-Traumatic Growth. And she said, oh, you have to have her on. And then um, Edith said, well, you have to have Linda on with me. And, you know, honestly, I thought, how will this go? It's very hard to have two guests. And they both in their own right could fill multiple episodes. Well, it turned into magic, real synergy. We were actually on video, which I don't do that often. And it, it did allow something really special to happen in the conversation. When you listen, look out for the nuance of trauma, trauma healing, how it shows up in the body, in our patterns, and collectively. Actually, Edith shares a story. She's down in Miami, and she shares a story from being in Miami. And she also poses a very uh, special question at the end of the episode, which we want you listeners to send your thoughts in. So, Um, Let me know what you think about this, the answer to this question, and we may have another episode just on it. So a little teaser there. But yeah, Edith's story speaks to collective trauma. And, you know, in fact, she says trauma is never an individual thing. And then we get into a lot. And one of the things that Linda and I get into is about end of life, which some of you have been following, has been a, a deep interest to me lately. I um, now working as an end-of-life doula in addition to my other work in trauma sensitivity and forest therapy. And this is just another avenue of coaching and support that I've brought into my circle of offerings. So um, there is some profound stuff that we can get to from realizing that life is short. Sometimes it takes a diagnosis to get to that realization. And Sometimes through the work I did for the training, we can really visualize that life is short and maybe start living now as if time is short. And how would we want to live and be and what kind of legacy do we want to leave? 
to others. So this is part of my work as an end-of-life doula, helping people to make meaning and make the most out of that end of time, make choices, difficult choices, have difficult conversations, maybe heal some wounds and have some closure in different areas of life and um, and also creating some ritual and and having some say in how it all unfolds. So if you'd like to hear more about that, it's on my site. I also have some workshops coming up. It's still time to catch me in Miami. So uh, take a look at my site and all that jazz. So to introduce my guests today, really, really, again, so blessed to have them. Dr. Adit Shiro is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Miami, Florida, and she specializes in trauma and post-traumatic growth, holding space and guiding her patients to achieve greater potential and higher consciousness. She's the founder of Trauma and Resilience Center, a board member of the World Happiness Foundation, and an active member of Cadena International, providing humanitarian aid and disaster prevention worldwide, and is on the advisory board of International Humanitarian Organization, HIAS. She's worked at Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture of the Cambodian Refugee Clinic at Montefiore Medical Center and the Human Rights Clinical Support Network Refuge, among others. Dr. Shiro offers workshops on trauma-based therapy for mental health professionals and is a frequent guest on various TV shows, podcasts, and radio programs. And of course, we refer quite frequently to her book, which I mentioned, I'll say it again, The Unexpected Gift of Trauma, The Path to Post-Traumatic Growth. Both of these guests said, don't read my whole bio, just, you know, tell them the, the kind of the highlight points. But I think it's really good to hear all they're doing there, like I said, each in their own right, could fill multiple episodes. So our other guest today, Linda Sparrow, author, mentor, and teacher with deep roots in both ancient and contemporary yoga meditation, specializes in practices for physical, emotional, and spiritual health. She has served as editor-in-chief of Yoga International and Natural Solutions Magazines and managing editor, acting editor, and contributing editor of Yoga Journal. She has lent her writing and editing skills to a variety of book projects, from celebrity memoirs to spiritual self-help books from the psychology of pleasure to post-traumatic growth. And you'll see how she worked with Edith. You'll see how she's a writing coach and how she helps formulate these ideas. And she really becomes a student of the practice of the writer and helps them to actually clarify their ideas. It's, it's You're going to actually witness that in this episode. Linda is, she's authored six books of her own, including the award-winning Yoga at Home, Inspiration for Creating Your Own Personal Practice. A Woman's Book of Yoga and Health, A Lifelong Guide to Wellness, and Yoga for Healthy Bones. She's on the advisory board of Yoga and Body Image Coalition and has contributed the leading chapter to Yoga and Body Image and the forward to Yoga and Eating Disorders. Her talks and practices on body image and anxiety and depression appear on yogaanytime.com, yogauonline.com, as well as audio and video interviews. Outside the office, Linda's continued her commitment to holistic health. She was instrumental in launching the Courageous Women, Fearless Living Retreats for Women with Breast and Reproductive Cancers. This is her heart's work. She talks about it a lot in the episode. And she also speaks about and leads workshops on grief and loss, moving through the stages of our lives, and how yoga helps us to learn to love ourselves. We will all be touched by cancer, by loss, by grief at some point in our lives. And having some different frameworks for looking at it, for grieving, Um, And for the stages, um, which we're going to learn a lot about today, the stages that can lead us to post-traumatic growth and why we should all be thinking about this, even if we don't consider ourselves a trauma survivor. There's a really good point on this, again, towards the end of the episode. So make sure you listen all the way. Awesome. Again, a really uh, deep-hearted welcome. And gratitude to the both of you, Edith and Linda. Wonderful to be connected to you both and excited about just all the directions this conversation could go. You know, it's uh, it's always interesting, especially when we have more than one. This is my second time with more than one guest. So I'll let a lot of, you know, what's interesting us and in the, in the two of you lead us in various directions. But um, to start us off, 
I really want to talk about this idea of post-traumatic growth. That's at the heart of why we're here, because I think this is very, very important and an area that people don't necessarily know about. So can you tell us what is post-traumatic growth? So Lara, thank you so much for the invitation. And I always happy and ready to talk about post-traumatic growth, which is the title of uh, my, you know, part of the title of my book, The Unexpected Gift of Trauma. And it's been the focus on my research and my clinical work for the last 20 years. And not many people know about post-traumatic growth. People know about post-traumatic stress and they know about PTSD, which by the way, was yesterday was the national day of PTSD or something like that. Yeah, there's even like a national day for that. So that's how recognized PTSD, which is, is the very negative and difficult symptoms that people go through when they're traumatized. But what people don't know is that, or they're less informed, is that Sometimes even when you go through trauma or you go through very challenging, difficult situations in life and experiences, you can also gain so much and you can evolve, develop, transform in ways that you can't even imagine. And the result of that is called post-traumatic growth. So it's the positive changes, the positive outcomes that can come from facing and dealing and processing challenging experiences. So, you know, we call that post-traumatic growth because there's a, it's a series of criteria and uh, characteristics that people with post-traumatic growth show. I'm sure people want to know how can they be in that category? So some people <laughs> go through traumatic experience and then they are in a trauma response for a very long time, uh, maybe ongoing. Some people get through it and they're able to function. And then there's this other category that's able to thrive and have this growth. So what what makes them special? How can we get there? <laughs> what do we need to know? What do, what do we need to do so that we end up in that space? Yeah, sounds like you read the first chapter of my book. Because... <laughs> I read the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly, you know, the the like the three groups that I've seen, you know, in observing post-traumatic growth and learning about it and studying it and, and promoting it in my practice as well, which is like, you know, and the question, like, what makes a difference really between people that stay stuck in repetitive behavior, in the, in traumatic symptoms, in trauma response, and what is what is it that makes a difference for people to thrive, to do a leap forward, to a, do a quantum leap into something else, and to become the people that they they want to become without even knowing that they can't sometimes. And I think there's a key element here that I see is that first is that people are aware that this is a possibility, and that's why writing a book about it and talking about it, which I've been doing for all these years and promoting it and bringing consciousness to it is so important because most people think that once you have a trauma, especially if you have a big trauma, big, huge event, people feel that that might be like a life sentence. And the good news, and, you know, Linda and I talk about this all the time, is that, you know, the hope that this brings of knowing that there's a possibility, an option, an opportunity for growth after trauma is huge because it gives the people a chance to say, oh, well, I didn't know there's something else. There's like a light at the end of the tunnel. There's something else that I can do with this. But the other thing about it is that, yes, you're aware of it. But the next thing is that you, you, you want to have to have the willingness to do it or have the courage, I say. It takes courage to go through this process. And we'll, you know, we'll tell you more about the process, but it does require you to want to go through this because this is not like a button that you press or this is not like a switch, like from one day to the next, you're done. It's a quick pill. No, no, it takes time. It takes yeah. dedication. It takes persistence. It takes processing it. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, you really have to go into it in order to grow from it. Mm -hmm. what, what did you think when you heard about this, Linda? I mean, you've been working in yoga and yoga really as a healing modality and 
for so long. Had you thought about post-traumatic growth before and what's been some of the you know surprising things that you've learned from working with Adit? Well, first of all, I feel like I am a graduate student in trauma working with <laughs> because we worked, oh my gosh, like a year and a half at least together. And I had the honor of helping her translate this vast amount of knowledge and wisdom into this book where people could say yes, right? I could really see this. And I never thought about, there are a number of things in the book that Adit will talk about that were so beautiful to me because I could put them in context also with the work that I do. Like it wasn't a vocabulary that I had, right? And yet working with people who are dying, working uh, particularly women who are dying or who have um, split from themselves in multiple ways, you know, to know that there is actually a, a path, a really specific path has been really beautiful. And to know that when we heal, we heal growth means in, in Adit's heart and in her experience in, in the world is that we grow not in spite of what we've been through, um, which is really about more about resilience, which I know that Adit will talk about. We really grow because of it. And, and we see examples of that all the time. But I never had the vocabulary and, and the, the path to understand how to walk that path. It was pretty exciting. It really has been one of the, the most enjoyable collaborations I've done in a long time. Mm. I know. You're getting lots of love there. <laughs> is, is there a certain time in the process that a person should be introduced to this concept? I mean, I can imagine if I've just been through something, I don't want to hear that it's going to be good for my growth. Yeah, Linda and I talk about that too, right, Linda? We always laugh about this because when you're in the middle of that traumatic experience and you're suffering and you are really going through those trauma responses that you were mentioning, the last thing you want to hear is that you're going to get a gift out of this. And people might even be offended to tell you the truth. It's like, be careful to say something like that to somebody that is in the middle of experiencing the trauma, because it's like, how can you even come to me and tell me that I'm going to get a gift out of this? And so people have told me, it's like, wow, you're, the title of your book is, it has trauma and gift in the same sentence. How is that possible? That's a contradiction. That's like, doesn't make sense. And it's only when the person is ready to almost like radically accept what they've been going through it's when the person is going through so much suffering, when they've hit rock bottom, when there's nothing else, when they've already explored all their survival responses or their fight, flight, freeze on every response that they've had and they're still in the same place, that they really are open and willing to maybe say, hmm, I have to surrender to this. And that's where the process begins. But Linda, what do you think? I'm curious also to see what you, know, what you think about when is the right time to, when well, have I, you seen? Right. I mean, one of the things that, that you talk about in the book that, that I think is really important for me and for the work that I've gotten to do is that we talk about the idea that, first of all, I have no idea as a facilitator, as a friend, as, a, as, as anything to know exactly what you're going through. So for me to come and say, oh, you know what, it's going to be fine. Um, I have to. As someone with trauma, I have to feel it. I have to really understand what is, you know, I have to live this and fall apart. And and right? And so to have someone come too soon, it's not going to work. I don't even know it's trauma. I don't even know anything. I just know that I've had this horrible experience, right? And it is when, like, even with, with work that I do with women with cancer, who are stage four, who really feel like this is it, right? Who am I to come to them and go, oh, it's going to be fine, right? But when they are ready, when they say, you know what? I don't want to be this. I don't want to live like this. And they, they find a sense of community and they can say, all right, I'm ready. But it has to come from them. And it has to come at a time when it's, they're, they're not in the experience. Yeah. Yeah. One one of the things that I yeah, one of the things that I do 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. And one of the things that uh, that I do with my patients is that I am I become the the holder of their hope in some ways. I say even though you don't see it yet and I'm I'm with you 100% in this space of like hopelessness and helplessness and not even seeing everything is dark, I'm going to be holding that hope that there's going to be light later on or there's something else that you're going to that is going to evolve from what you're experiencing now. And you know from my I can say to them, you know, I have the experience and you know my personal experience and my professional experience allows me to tell you that there's something else. But right now you are in this place of maybe not seeing it and that's okay. But that little kernel of like possibility yeah. i think you know can get you know a seed in there that says mm, maybe i can open up to something later on yeah yeah definitely yeah i love that just having someone else believe in you or see a possibility for you that you can't see for yourself is yeah exactly. such a beautiful and powerful thing and it allows them the time to like i'm not ready to be there it's okay i'll be there and also with you where you are now. I mean, I think that's that's beautiful. You say in your book that trauma is part of life and unavoidable. Can you expound on that a little more? Well, because sometimes the word trauma can, uh, for a lot of people, can be associated with something very drastic and extreme. And I understand that's where the word originally comes from, especially applied to war veterans and really severe, out of, you know, completely outstanding experiences. Nowadays, I, I think the more we learn about this and the more we deal with emotions and with deeper processes as we are, I like to expand the term of trauma. And I say that, first of all, it's a very subjective concept, meaning like I cannot determine what is traumatic for you and you cannot say what's traumatic for me, right? If I say my divorce was traumatic and you say, ah, but you had such an easy divorce, you love each other, there was no fight, you know, everything is wonderful, you're friends. Yeah, but for me it was traumatic. I mean, even if you if you see it in another way, right? Like, so that's one thing. So it's subjective. The other thing is that trauma is also relational. So it's not just the trauma of like going to war or the trauma of an earthquake or the trauma of a building collapsing on you. It's also the everyday trauma, the trauma of everyday life, meaning like there are little things that happen chronically. For example, sometimes the relationship that we have with our mother or with our father that keeps happening every day as we grow up in our development is traumatizing, but we don't get to even become conscious of it until we start exploring it. For example, uh, Lina and I talk about this a lot, the microaggressions that can happen in our culture, right? As a racist microaggressions or a cultural, religious, you know, gender-based, that it's not like a huge event that happens, but it's little things that keep happening that are everyday kind of traumas. Bullying that happens with children in school. I can't tell you the amount of adults that I have in life right now in my practice that tell me, well, you know, I really, I was so bullied or I was really rejected so much in school that even today as a grown-up, as a married person, <laughs> you know, I'm still dealing with those kind of traumatic experiences. So things that sometimes we can't even become aware of that then later on we see that we develop trauma responses or survival responses. And those are traumatic experiences too. So expanding that term is very important. And it's not one other thing that I say is that it's not just the event itself, but it's also what's happening around it and what's inside you that's happened, the amount of support that you had. You know, if you if you're moving from one country to another, but you have so much support, you have people around you, you have resources, you have maybe the experience of trauma is different than if you move from one country to another and you are so isolated in your experience that you can't even begin to share it with anybody else. So yeah, absolutely. Such a good point, because the same event or events um, can land completely differently depending on inner and outer resources. That's a really important thing to remember. I think a lot of the work also that you do, Adit, is to look at 
Like trauma is something that gets stuck inside of us, right? So it's not something that like a lot of people will say to me, I do a lot of grief work. And a lot of people say that grief is really traumatic. And, you know, sometimes I think it really is, particularly when there's stories attached to it. But a lot of times we're dealing with processing emotions. And so I think that's really different than having trauma stuck inside of you and then to appear when like this whole bullying thing to realize that part of my personality, the way that I deal in the outside world is partly because of my past. So I'm not fully present. I'm still stuck there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's really interesting. That was really interesting to me in working with Adit was to find like how many things are just stuck in our tissues. We say that in yoga all the time, Laura, right? It gets stuck in the fascia. It gets thick. It, it, whatever that is, right? It's not released. And that's really what Adi's work moves toward in post-traumatic growth is the acknowledgement, the validation, and then the release of, mm. of what's stuck. Yeah, it's almost like not grieving actually is what could potentially be the trauma response. Um, and this kind of leans into the resilience mode or, you know, where we have all these adaptations, physical, emotional, and they, they become, they can become so much a part of life that it can take something to see that we're doing them because they just become how we are. And then we're being ruled by this trauma that we, we may not even realize we're, we're not, we're being ruled by something else. Totally. No, no, no. I love how you make the distinction and actually totally agree that not grieving is what is traumatic. Grieving is absolutely normal and accepted and wonderful that we go through. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's hard. Yes, but it's not trauma. That's not trauma. Trauma is the opposite. There's a a mystic that talks a lot about trauma called uh, Thomas Hubel. I don't know if you know. And he, he he talks a lot about collective trauma and he says that we have normalized so much our trauma responses that we're not even aware that we're in trauma because they're part of our everyday lives. So we can, we can, if we were really to deal with our collective trauma and, you know, not just from this generation, but even our ancestral collective trauma, we would be behaving in very different, very different ways, right? Because we wouldn't be I mean, there's so many examples of like uh, trust issues and how we relate to one another and how we react to different things that are so trauma-based, even in our bodies, the way that we handle our body and the way that we position ourselves, right, in space is so based in trauma that we don't even realize. Mm -hmm. And that until we work on that, if we become aware of it, not just individually, but as a collective, our response would be very, very different and our sense of freedom, our sense of creativity, our imagination, our exchange with one another would be very different. Mm, yeah, because we kind of we pass those patterns on to others and it's cyclical and relational and generational. You know, as you're talking so much about embodiment, I wonder <laughs> if Linda, if you may want to share some of the ways you've seen this people process both in the yoga space and maybe writing telling and telling their stories. Cause I'm sure a lot of people are processing with you. I mean, obviously Sean Korn comes to mind, um, you know, through telling, telling their stories and the, the act of writing, which is uh, physical as well as emotional, intellectual, all of it. That's so interesting that, that you say that, you know, even looking at Sean Korn's book, uh, One of the things that I often do when people get stuck, because naming our history, naming our trauma, naming our experience, brings us right back into it. And that in itself is a a trigger for most people. And and for a lot of people, just shuts us down. Like, I can't even write about it. I can't express it because then it's going to become real. Right. And one of the things that Sean talks about in her podcast and stuff when she talks about our process is that I had her actually write in present tense. And then in her actual book, what became present tense, and I Adita and I did this a little bit too, is that were the places in the story that really brought 
whatever it was we're talking about to life, right? But it was really, really hard for Sean to be in that present tense because it, it, you're there and you're not a 50-year-old woman then putting this gloss on. Well, I used to think that, but now I, you know, you are that 21-year-old who's really, really beautiful friend is dying of AIDS. You know, I mean, so you are there. You are there when you were eight years old and were abused. So writing can be incredibly powerful. And so, but when I teach it, you know, same with yoga, like my whole mantra when I teach is, isn't that interesting? I say that all the time (laughs) because I want people to not judge so much. Like, you know, isn't it interesting that every time this happens, this is my response. Like, where is that? Where does that come from? All right. And where does it land in my body? Like someone said this and I immediately I could feel it in my groin or I could feel it in my throat. What is that? Write that, right? You know, what is the felt sense of that? Don't try to go back and write the whole story about why and where and who. It's where is that felt sense? Where do you feel it, right? And how do we soften it? Or do we? Do we need to, right? And then we do prompts like, I remember, dot, 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 right? Or one of my favorites is, I don't remember. So that's been that's been super fun, super fun. And sometimes when I work with women, just recently, I, I guess a year or so ago, I had a workshop. And I'm known for working with women, right, in the stages of our lives and all of that. And, and these women... There were about 30 of us, and they really wanted to talk about, like, how, you know, the stages of their lives. And so we did, you know, we did some asana for sure to get us in the body. And I don't actually do writing prompts unless I do a really deep visualization first. Like, be there mm-hmm. in relationship with your with that story and then bring forth what it's asking you to bring forth, right? Yeah. So, right? So... I just said, you know, there's lots of little asanas we can do for this and for that. But what does it feel like to come into relationship with this part of you in this moment that's changing? You know, what is the story? What is the dialogue that we have with that part of us? And yes, it's a little bit like, you know, family systems. and and, But it is that welcome to the table kind of thing, right? So with Adit's work... I've just grown so as someone who could help women really move from one stage to the next, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. And, you know, and that's why, with, you know, what Linda is saying is that's why working with trauma cannot put on aside working with the body. It's essential and it's required that we go to the body. And not not just because it lives there, not just because the body keeps a score, but because the way that we process trauma from a neurological perspective is that our brain is in such a way that it stores it in a place that it's not readily accessible for a very good reason. And the reason is that our bodies are protecting ourselves from painful, dangerous feelings, experiences, and we on purpose store this in parts of our brains that don't have access for memory or for presence. And, you know, sometimes we even dissociate from these experiences to protect ourselves from living in a constant state of danger and running away or being in attacking mode or because then we can't function. So it's only through accessing, passing the conscious mind and passing the brain and the thinking and the prefrontal cortex that we are able to get into a more subconscious and more unconscious places in our body that then trigger those memories, believe it or not. And well, you you know this, I'm sure that touching parts of our body trigger very specific memories of trauma. It's like little buttons that you press in your body that trigger memories because that's where the memory got stored, right? In like those nervous system connections or neuropathic connections or um, synopsis connections that make all this this memory get constructed again in our bodies. And then we relive it as if it's happening in the moment, which is what our bodies are protecting us from in the first place. 
So yeah. when we are doing the work that let's say Linda is doing with the yoga, we have to be very mindful that the moment you are touching these places in our in the body, you are opening up for processes, right? That have been stored and protected and put away to not have this overwhelming reaction of trauma again. So it's beautiful when you have somebody so conscious and aware to do this kind of work. <laughs> yeah. Well, Laura does this work really beautifully as well. So I just want to acknowledge that, Laura. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that, that's why we're talking about it with Laura. In this context, we're, we're talking about the two of you. I know, <laughs> thank <but>. you. <laughs> And um, yeah, and obviously we met through through that. Um, yeah, and that, but that's why it's good to talk about these kind of topics with with people like you, Lara and Linda, that are so aware and conscious of this of this work. <laughs> yeah, what I, what I think is interesting too, Adine, is that when we have these moments and we can actually identify where in the body, like when we're triggered or when something happens, and we can actually feel that shit my heart is like racing or i'm sweating or what is happening here right and so to be able to connect a feeling or a memory with something physical with something concrete like this we can say huh and we can begin to get that association right and like for me it's like i used to say to my kids like if you're really angry what would happen if you just open your hands Mm, does yeah. that change the feeling be like a little tiny bit does it change so to know that we have agency oh yeah too. yeah when you're like crawling up i'm sure you guys know this when you're crawling into yourself and you're in you're protecting your chest and your front part of the body you are in survival danger place when you open your chest up and your heart is out and you are showing yourself to the world you're you're saying i trust myself and i trust the world and i'm ready to experience it right so even just the position of the body is so associated with how we are relating to our own trauma and how we how ready we are to receive and to trust there's so much there from the both of you. I mean, a lot of things are coming to my mind right now. I mean, the first, uh, I just loved that, uh, Linda, about opening the palms when you're angry. And it reminded me of a way that I work with my yoga students. It's like when things get hard, when you go into a, you know, a difficult position, the inclination is to tense up and fight through it. And actually what makes the posture easier and come alive is is relaxing so it's kind of training the opposite yeah. response which is something really interesting that can be learned through the yoga practice i think it's uh so one of the wise things that i learned through my own practice is no. to kind of soften when things are hard <laughs> which is you know and then as you were talking indeed i was thinking oh my gosh yeah to open like that i mean that's challenging for those of us who haven't even been through like what we would say is like a, a big trauma. So I'm really feeling into the vulnerability of that and, and the letting go. I do want to make sure that we, that we talk about that. Like the, it feels to me like we're, we kind of are talking about letting go of some of that resilience that we've built in, in order to dare into something new. And so I wonder if you want to speak to that. Yeah. But so let's let's make a distinction between what it's like not to be ready uh, or being resilient. So resiliency, there's, it's a wonderful thing for people to have resources and tools to face difficult situations. And I'm all for that. And it's a bouncing back into, a, you know, being able to deal with things. And actually in the process of getting to post-traumatic growth, you develop resilience. So it's a good thing to have. You know, I support that. The thing is that, when you are in situations in which what you're using is repetitive behaviors to protect yourself, it's different than being resilient. Is that you're not even aware of the of the connection with your emotions and with your body and with yourself and, and also in your relationship with others. So that kind of disconnect is what keeps you in a trauma, in a traumatic state. 
So that's why these five stages that I talk about and that you know that we were we're writing and we're proposing here about post-traumatic growth requires that if I'm gonna open that chest and I'm gonna say here I trust the world, that you come to the second stage of safety and protection. You don't just do that. You after the first stage, which is you know radical acceptance, because when you are radically accepting you know, what's happening with you and the symptoms that you have and realizing, let's say, that you're closing your fist or that you're tight or that you're struggling with something, even in yoga poses, it's like, okay, let me accept that. Because if I'm in denial and saying to the yoga teacher, no, uh-uh, I'm not, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm doing it. What are you talking about? Look at my pose. It's beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's a metaphor for life also, right? It's like nothing wrong with me. I'm doing fine. <laughs> it's only when you get into that radical acceptance and say, oh, yes, I am you know, clenching my fist or I am tight, I am resisting, that you can go into the next stage, which is let me be in a place where I can feel contained and I feel that I trust that it's a safe space. And that maybe the relationship that they create with you, Lara, or with you, Linda, as a, as a yoga instructor, as a yogi, to say, I can trust this space to maybe let go to do that surrendering and to show up with my feelings, with my vulnerabilities, to with my weaknesses and be willing to put a name to it and be willing to identify it because part of the trusting is having knowing that the other person or the other group or, the, or that container, container is going to validate and acknowledge and recognize what you're going through. And mm -hmm. that's really a key part of that trusting process in order to move forward. It's, and that's why there's so many collective traumas out there and individual traumas that have not been able to move forward because there's not that recognition, not that validation, and not acknowledgement of that. Like I, I was just uh, honoring the second year anniversary of the building collapse here in Miami where 100 people died. And here we are sitting in our big ceremony in the city with all the big politicians and the commissioners and the mayors and all the families there two years later. And part of that resentment and anger and sadness and mourning has not been able to advance and, and, and heal because there's no, no recognition, like public recognition of the responsibility and the not just acknowledgement, but your the accountability mm -hmm. that the that the community has, or that the people responsible have, in order for them to say, "Ah, I've been heard, I've been seen, I've mm. been validated. Now I can move forward." So they're stuck in that. Like, let me show you, but let me show you how I'm suffering. Let me show you that I'm right. Let me show you how much I'm, I'm, I'm what I'm feeling, how much I'm suffering, how stuck I am, because there's no one, not not entity. Collective entities there that are saying, I, can, I see you, I validate you, and I take responsibility and, um, for, for this and the mm -hmm. accountability for what's happening. So. I really appreciate that example and, you know, reminds me of so much of your book because you really speak to like systemic and the collective and you say over and over again that trauma is not an individual thing. So um, thank you for, for giving us an example like that. I mean, so often people are not going to get that accountability from the one that they want. They're never going to hear that. Sorry, I hurt you. So we have to find it some other way, right? Maybe through a support group, through a therapist, through a, a yoga teacher, a friend, someone that will believe us and hear our pain. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you started to bring up the idea of uh, resilience because in, in Adit's book, I think that she makes a, a really strong sort of commitment or argument even about how resilience can sometimes get in our way of growth, right? And there are some people actually that aren't interested or not ready to move into growth, you know? And, and I think that the idea, especially in our culture right now, we talk so much about resilience or workshops, you know, every time I turn around about being more resilient, you know, and I think that Adit makes a really wonderful 
sort of way of looking at when resilience is actually really beneficial and when sometimes it could get in the way. And maybe Adi, you could, could talk a little bit about that because I, I found that immediately fascinating when we first started talking. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. You're, you're biased. <laughs> but no, yes, I um it's this idea of like keep defending and keep developing and keep saying, okay, I can do this. And even our culture supports that so much and saying, no, don't, don't get into your grieving. Don't take so much time into feeling your feelings. Don't open the space, take a pill. So you don't have to cry every day. Right. How many times we listen, but move on. Are you ready to move on? And let's mm. move on and moving on. Right. And there's that, that honoring the space to really feel the feelings, to really touch the rock bottom, to sit with your shadows, to really allow for all this, fears and doubts and uh, insecurities to come up doesn't really happen because we're living so fast and we we have to show our selfies in, in our social media that we're doing great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my thing is that if you want to reach post-traumatic growth, if you really truly want to be connected in a way that is meaningful, that you really are aligned with your life purpose, if you want to have a more spiritual connection with yourself, you have to sit with those feelings and you have to not be so resilient and show that you can do everything and you're a superwoman or a superman, right? Like you can hand, you know, that you can allow yourself to not look so good and go through so much pain. And it's not, of course, nobody wants to go through pain and nobody goes through suffering. But what I've seen so far is that only when we allow ourselves to go through it to something that is already there. And we really go all the way that we can come out transformed and that it's painful and it's difficult. And there's a lot of maybe destruction and reconstruction that happens inside and out. But then, then we are this beautiful butterfly that, you know, that can fly. And, you know, we, Linda and I always use this example that the caterpillar really goes in there into that cocoon and that gets destroyed. I mean, literally all these you know liquids and everything are not there's like nothing from what the caterpillar what the caterpillar was and then it becomes this beautiful butterfly and if you interrupt that process there's no butterfly to be seen mm -hmm. so it really takes that that all those stages to get to the other side and that's why sometimes resilience doesn't allow for us to do that so it, it's it like it hinders that process of growth and i think what really happens is if we can't radically acknowledge not only that that this was a traumatic thing that happened but that we're reaching out um it's time right if we're just no i'm strong i got this what trauma i don't know what you're talking about then we kind of motor on and sometimes something happens and and as Deed says, it could be something in almost seemingly inconsequential and bam right everything sort of falls right apart. But the but the coolest thing that we were when we were talking about this whole butterfly thing, the coolest thing that connected it deeply to Adit's work to growth is that first of all, the caterpillar, you know, goes into this thing. And if we anthropomorphize, it's like without a clue of what's going to happen, right? So there you are, and this chrysalis completely dissolves everything, but in the making of the butterfly contains the parts of the caterpillar. And so, right. And so all this goo, part of it becomes on purpose, becomes the, you know, little tentacles or whatever. Part of it becomes the wings. And so in, a, in the whole thing about growth is that we are transforming and we're bringing along what broke us, what our joys, our sufferings, all of it. So we're not saying, wow, I got through that. And thank God I don't have to do that shit again. Mm. What we're saying is, wow, because of that, that is now in my fashion. This is in my fingers. It's in my feet, whatever, right? It's mm -hmm. my determination. And so we become more resilient to the next thing. Mm. Is that so that after growth, we go, hey, I think I can do this. All right. <laughs> So is this, are you kind of bringing us into this third stage of becoming? 
Oh. Right. Yeah. 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 So the it's third stage. That did it, not me. I don't know. It just seemed like we're we're naturally going through the stages. <laughs> yes, we are. No, I love it like that. But also the the third stage, which is new narratives, is really before we even integrate everything that Linda was saying about how it gets all integrated. There's that exploration that what else is out there that is new that I don't know about because all my belief system, my understanding of the world of myself has been shattered. So people are really open to exploring new things. This is when you get all these new people that want to do yoga with you and say, ha, I've never tried this. Let me see what it's like to be in touch with my body and to, you know, explore myself from a different place or people going to reading different books or people going to new religions or new spiritual awakenings and, or start to dress differently or have new groups of friends, right? Or they style their hair. It's like changes that are happening that it's like you're trying out new things until you find almost like a new set of beliefs or new understanding, a a more expanded notion of yourself in the world. That's new narratives. And then you get into the integration, which Linda explains so beautifully. Because it's like you get all these pieces, the new and the old, to really reconstruct yourself. And you get to the fifth stage of, by the way, and in this fourth stage of integration, you're able to look at the traumatic event without having that reaction, without feeling that you're in the present moment, feeling it and relieving it, which is the and I just want it. to say about the narrative stage as well, because I really like how you describe that, you know, trying on something new. And, and I mean, I just see that so much in my life, how, you know, exploring different parts of self and Um, A lot of people, when they hear about like, write a new narrative, write a new story for yourself, it feels very, yeah, I see like, those of you who can't see, you'd see like, Linda's making a face, you know, know, take the story and write it, you know, make a new ending or whatever. And it just, it falls flat and that can push people away. But the way you're describing it is much richer. But because you have to go through the other two stages before that, because what are you going to write new if you haven't recognized and identified what's happened to you? Mm -hmm. I mean, so it comes from like more of a false place of like, keep repeating the same thing. It's like really cracking up for the new things to enter. But how can you write something new if you haven't cracked up? Right. Because then you, if, if right. you really don't dig deep, you end up, no matter how hard you try, exactly. you're, you will see that you have we somehow just done the same pattern. The same pattern. Know, right? Yes, because there's no, there's nothing to, to draw from. And then you go so to the integration stage, and then you go to the fifth stage, which is the stage of wisdom and growth, my favorite stage, in which you really truly are in a place where you see your priorities and different. You understand what your priorities are. You're able to connect with yourself and with others in a more meaningful way. Uh, most people report having a, a a spiritual connection or a spiritual understanding, and it's not not religious at all. What it means is like it's more like you're connected with the with the whole or with the universe, or there's a higher sense of self or something like we're the, the, we're all interconnected. People usually at that stage have a clearer understanding of their life purpose. They become more like oh. Uh, I know why I'm doing this. This has more meaning or I have a life mission. And some, most of the time it's related to their wound. So mm-hmm. their wound, their pain becomes their purpose. The wound becomes the medicine. It's like the, you know, the breakdown becomes the breakthrough. That's where it's like, that's when you see people that are like the mentors of, of uh, people that are struggling with addiction or alcoholism have been alcoholics themselves or people that have going through sexual abuse have become are the ones that are opening the centers for sexual abuse women or the people and so on and so forth so it's a beautiful thing to see because it's not just a transformation for yourself but you're really giving back to the community uh in a beautiful way i love that i think that that the stages make so much sense because just in a way what you were saying laura is that we can't expect to, to feel that there's wisdom within the wound unless we're able to say, I am a woman who was sexually abused, and I am also a woman who is strong and capable and ahead of, you know, whatever I am, right? And so until this experience, this trauma becomes 
an experience and part of my past that has made me who I am now, then there's no way we can take it forward into growth and into wisdom, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It has to be with us and a part of us and not shut away. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. <laughs> it is a part of us. Even if we sh- try to shut it away. No. It's louder, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. You know, this meaning, talking about meaning and finding meaning and making meaning, you know, a meaning that arises when we, it almost seems like it sometimes arises just from going through the steps. Like we kind of naturally step into that next phase when we've done that. Linda, I don't think you know this, but I've just completed doing a certification in end of life doula. You did? Yes. Wow. Wow, wow. I did it with Henry, like Fink Weiss. Do you know who he is? Fink Weiss. Um, And they call it doula? It's actually yeah. the, oh, which wow. is a different yeah first go ways Henry first go ways sorry Henry um, oh, yeah, hopefully yeah. he will come I, on I, I know of him um, yeah very known and respected in that space and wow. um, oh good uh, for you yeah and a lot of your work is right there and a lot of the stuff we're talking about I mean a lot of things that came up in this conversation around because the whole the doula process end of life doula process can range for quite a long time from getting a, a diagnosis. And even and after the death, part of the grief process mm-hmm. with family. And so there are a couple of things that have come up related to that. And I, uh, I definitely wanted to touch on that since it's so alive in me right now. The um, pushing away, telling people to grieve faster and pushing that away. And then also the, the beautiful thing that came out of this course, which is what I realized about how much meaning a person can get to, you know, after a diagnosis and knowing that there's a short time. That's for sure. <laughs> you want to speak to some of, you know, what, what you've seen and been a part of and folks process that? Well, first of all, it's really interesting because again, it aligns with what Adit's saying a lot is that I wrote an article about this years ago with um, this organization I helped found called Courageous Women Fearless Living. And it is for women and it's a Buddhist meditation, yoga, art, music, dance, whatever, coming together for a week up at a sacred space in, in the Rockies. And when people first come there, the women are so frightened. Nobody wants to sit next to each other because if I'm now in remission and this person has been and suddenly she's in recurrence, Mm-hmm. I don't want to even be near her because what if that rubs off on me? My hope is now drained because of her experience and her experience becomes a trauma marker in some sense to my own experience, right? And so there's a lot of wigs and lots of clothing on and people not speaking or not. And then we do this Tibetan thing where we break up in what we call delics, which are little communities of care. And there's one person who's generally comes from that tradition or mindfulness meditation tradition to to not really lead but to hold space right by the end of it people are like on each other's laps they're bald they're like almost naked and they're and there's so much joy and laughter that comes out of even and back up so judy leaf who is a longtime incredible presence in the death and dying, grief and loss space. And she wrote a book, Making Friends with Death. She always did a loss and change workshop that was always, you know, it's just optional. And maybe a few people the first couple of years would come and it was just, you know, she's so gentle. But, and then after, I mean, we've been doing this 15 years. And so then it became the thing that people wanted to talk about. And people in stage four, people who are preparing to, actively preparing to die, in some ways, were the most joyful, the most loving and connected and funny people that I have ever come across. Laughing at themselves, looking at, this is me. This is who I am. I'm all love. That is all I got left, right? And that is like really the power and the beauty of community and in a community where you can really come in to your body and also share your grief, your laughter and your support and your ideas with other people. Right. Yeah. And like you say, you the gift of trauma, the gift of 
knowing, you know, none of us knows. And the gift of this course has been my remembering. I've I've done gone through this process a few times in my life. I'm always really grateful for it because of course we naturally go back into uh this kind of regular way of being where we pretend that that we're not gonna die and uh right. So having that very present to be able to live in that way before getting that close. Right. You know, to, and you to, know, yeah. And it descends this all the time. And at first I, I'm so resistant, but you know, so many people say if it hadn't been for this experience, I never would be connected to my heart. I never would be the person I am today. Right. And there's a story that Adit talks about in the book that's just so powerful. And it's this rabbi who loses his son. His son dies um, in a really bizarre disease that he had. And the rabbi said that after the death of his beloved son, that he became a much better, more connected, more compassionate, more because of that trauma that he experienced. And at the same time, he said, I would give everything up to have my son back. But yeah, we don't want to ever be I, saying that. Yeah, right. because the right. last thing you want to say to anyone who is dying is, oh, well, right. you know, in this trauma, oh, yeah. you'll you'll thank it, you know, much less. Yeah. No, I'm right. in this, I'm suffering, and I, I cannot see the light at any, there is no tunnel, right. there is light anywhere. And to those, and Linda, maybe you can relate to this, you know, working with writers, those who think that, you know, artists and writers that have a kind of reputation of thinking that they need to suffer to produce good art. So we also don't want to um, suggest that that's the only way. And of course, learning through people's stories, creative visualization, which was in this course where we had to imagine ourselves getting diagnosis, getting closer and closer to death and finally dying. We did, I think, four different creative visualizations, maybe five over the course and there was a lot of space between our sessions where we were really integrating journaling you know maybe a week off processing there are other ways to feel what others have felt and to come alive and have growth and <laughs> without tragedy exactly absolutely and that's why imagination is so fundamental you know and creativity is so fundamental to take us further and to take us to those places and yeah one of the big questions that i ask Every time I come across one of these big, you know, the Dalai Lama and, you know, other Sadhguru and other people, I ask this question, I, or big rabbis, I say, is it possible to get to a level of consciousness and growth and wisdom to where people get to without going through suffering? Because the example of Buddha and the example, every example that we have so far right, has been with so much suffering, all the stories in the different cultures and the different religions, who are the people that achieve the highest spiritual awakenings, it's through suffering. So my question always is, is it possible for us to learn from this and, uh, you know, get to this place and get to this wisdom and growth without having to go through the suffering? So that's a question that I don't have an answer to yet. And uh, that might be my next book. I don't know. But... I love to leave that open to what people think. <laughs> and yes. maybe we can ask people their thoughts on that. I mean, that's, and sitting with the question, what a beautiful yes. thing. Yes. Well, yeah, yes. you know, Buddhism says life is suffering. I mean, just being in yeah. the body, you know, and the more that we get stuck in the past, the more that we reach for the future, the more we suffer, right? So I don't know that it's, it's even possible to have this body, to be a spiritual being having a human experience. That's such an interesting question. I love it. it yeah, uh, something maybe yeah. for the next podcast, we can explore that. Okay. <laughs> from, the, from the physical and the spiritual and the psychological perspective. <laughs> See, Let's do it. Maybe we'll find some, <laughs> some answers there. That's a wonderful question to leave us with. I know I've kept you both for about an hour now. Is there anything major that we missed that we that we should speak to? And then as a final round, let's let people know what's coming up next for both of you and how they can find you. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I do say, and I think it's important to remember is that 
part of what trauma does is that it isolates us and disconnects us. And being aware of doing this work is taking the responsibility as part of a society that we live in, as part of a community, and part of being in the human community, to keep the connection going. And if we allow ourselves to go through this process and get to this stage of post-traumatic growth, which I think we all can get to at some point or another, and goes, it's not a linear process. It's up and down and up and goes and goes and you go around and, you know, you can get to the fifth stage and go to the first stage. But going through it and having a more conscious life really promotes and creates interconnection that I think it's so fundamental that we all have. It's the recognizing it and having it and that's what can move move us forward. So, you know, my intention always is create more community and more interconnectedness and more consciousness through this work. So I really, really appreciate having conversations like this because that's what keeps us going and it's so enriching, really. I love it. (laughs) And I just want to say, one of the things that's the most powerful part of this work that Adidas doing is that these stages, well, two things, these stages are not just, I mean, not only because they, they're also important, but it's not only for the individual, even an individual that then moves into community. It's to also to heal communities, it's to heal, right? Cultures, if, you know, it's a, long, long string of work for sure. But also one of our responsibilities, um, and Adit talks about intergenerational trauma. As we do this work, one of our responsibilities, one way that we can say yes to this work is to know that if we do this work and we move into growth, that we can we have the power and the wherewithal to stop trauma from moving on to the next generation because we are no longer in its clutches and our behavior is no longer really supported by our traumas. We can Mm -hmm. say we can stop the intergenerational trauma. And that is, for me, that is really a a beautiful, beautiful aspect of Adit's work. It's that intergenerational. That's our responsibility, right? Chapter five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yes. I remember it now. You said that there's a vicarious you know, growth, vicarious post-traumatic growth. And I love that. We just had someone come talk about, you know, vicarious trauma. Well, there's vicarious post-traumatic yes. growth. And that leaves us with such a, a clear and strong mission for all of us. You know, thank you, Linda, for bringing us, you know, circular to that, that, you know, I have these conversations for purpose. And you really left us with a clear vision of our responsibilities, each of us, to create that world together. And, you know, everyone should get the book and read carefully through the stages. And we all have work to do on ourselves. So whether you identify as, you know, a trauma survivor or not, we've all been through our stuff. We're all carrying stuff our parents, our grandparents, and we all have our work to do. And what you've laid out there, it can can help anyone to to grow. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And there's a link. You can get the book in Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it at an ind- independent store. You can go to my, my website, which is www.dredithshiro.com and get the book there. Ask Lara where to get it. She knows. <laughs> We're going to link everything yes, in the yes. show notes and um, all over. And we blast this out. We hope many, many people will benefit from this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lara. Thank you both. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's lens.